Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Sound Iron Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Peters, and today on the podcast, we're talking with young up-and-coming film composer Ashton Gleckman. On this episode, we discuss his musical background starting at the age of six, interning at Hans Zimmer's Remote Control Productions, some of his insight into film composing and how he goes about it. And we also talk about his production company, Candlelight Pictures, how he got into filmmaking, and how he goes about scoring his own movies, and much, much more. So stick around. Ashton, I'd like to thank you for jumping on the Sound Iron Podcast with me. It's uh, really cool to talk to you. Uh, so how have you been? It's a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, been quite good, uh, busy, but I, I I always prefer to be busy than to than to be the opposite. So, uh, yeah, yes, staying busy is always good. Yeah, yeah. Um. So first off, I want to talk a little bit about your musical background. So your musical background started at the early age of six, right? Yeah, I got my first guitar um, that Christmas when I was six years old. I'd always sort of loved music. Uh, my dad, you know, growing up, played a lot of cla- uh, classic rock around the house. So I grew up with all those 80s hair bands, you know, this uh, Van Halen yeah. or Pink Floyd, stuff like that. Um, yeah. And I grew up loving that type of music, and I wanted to get a guitar and play it for myself. Um, and when I was six, I got this guitar kit for Christmas. It had that little, like, a little amplifier in there. Um, it had this electric guitar, and I absolutely loved it. Um, and I just started taking lessons, and shortly after, I started taking lessons in drums. Um, and then I started my own band when I was like 10. Um, and we pretty much wrote a lot of music together. We recorded a CD in Nashville, Tennessee uh, when I was 13. Um, and that was a fantastic experience, just getting the opportunity to be in a studio for for a couple weeks, just nonstop recording an album. Um, and then when I was 14, um, that's sort of when I began to grow this fascination and love for classical music and for film music. And that's sort of where my transition began. And I could sort of clearly remember when it was that I became fascinated with film music. And I was in the movie theater uh, watching this movie called The Imitation Game, uh, which starred Benedict Cumberbatch. And it was a great, great film. And I was sitting there at the end of the movie and I, you know, I'm not afraid to say it, I was just crying like a baby. I was like, why the hell am I crying this much? And then I just think <laughs> to myself, and then I go onto iTunes and I search up, you know, the, the soundtrack and I listen to that final track and automatically I just got the feelers again. And that was my first sort of experience directly with film music. And that's exactly the, the point where I remember being, um, having the having the understanding of the impact of film music and the the ability that it has to alter a scene and to add just this other dimension to it. Um, that's sort of where my love and fascination with film music sort of began. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that score. I think, I mean, I'm personally a huge Alexander Desplat fan. Yeah. And um, it's funny, I never saw that movie until I saw your uh, behind the score yeah. on the imitation game. Yeah. And I was just like, I've never just seen that movie and I was like, man, like I need to see that movie because obviously like the music's really good. I actually never heard the score, but uh, the first score I ever heard from him was uh, uh, Mr. Magorium's Wonder Emporium. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Des- De- Desplot is a particularly incredible talent because he has this, 
he has this ability to be so incredibly subtle but so incredibly emotional and you know his 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 writing for especially flutes because he was a classic flautist and so in a lot mm-hmm. of his scores he'll have bass flutes and alto flutes and f- regular flutes and piccolos and he's amazing when it comes to writing for flutes and stuff like that but he also just has this incredible ability to have some really just incredibly simplistic themes but then just sort of grow it into this incredible um, sort of symphonic, um, you know, world. And like, you know, a few of the scores that I love from him, like The Danish Girl, The Imitation Game, um, we've touched on and behind the score, but he really just is one of my favorites. He's an incredible talent. Yeah, I think think his ability to just create just like really rich orchestration. That's like the first word. I don't know why when I first heard some of his, his scores, I was just like, it just sounds rich, like yeah. just the way he goes about, you know, just create like crafting a melody and then using it throughout different mm-hmm. instruments and just how it all like sounds like a big room of, you know, yeah. like, instruments talking to each other. It's just amazing. Well, and the, the other thing, the other thing about Desplat is, of course, um, I think it's like Desplat or something like that. It's like, it's like a French thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, but the thing about him is that he sort of innovated the modern period drama sound, like the sound that you get from shows like. Downton Abbey or film scores like, um, you know, the, the Gabriel Yard amazing score like A Royal Affair and stuff like that. He sort of developed that period drama sound, uh, you know, with, with, with his scores, um, you know, like The Danish Girl and the, the Light Between Oceans, stuff like that. It's this amazingly elegant but intimate chamber ensemble sounds. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful um, sort of orchestrational environment that he creates in those types of scores and the way that he uses like the Celeste and he uses all these instruments very sort of nimbly but sort of makes them intertwine with the with the strings and the winds and it, it just sounds incredible and um, I definitely look forward to in the future looking at more of his scores because he he just is so great but but yeah yeah he's definitely if you're gonna learn from anyone he's uh he's definitely one to yeah sure if you can if you can imitate him or try yeah but, uh, um and so since then too you've written a symphony you've recorded two albums uh you've also got into directing you directed a feature film as well as three short films and uh and you've also com- you know composed a lot of up and coming you know scores and mm-hmm. for film and and stuff like that um so you you definitely seem like you're a very busy guy when do you find time to sleep um i don't know sleep is overrated don't you think you know <laughs> sleep when you're dead <laughs> right um no I mean, that's th- that is a that is an interesting thing that you say there because a lot of us just totally forget when we're living our daily lives and we get up in the morning we brush our teeth we eat breakfast we live our daily lives we go to bed we do the same thing over and over again we we are in this sort of pattern and we tend to sometimes forget about the fact that this doesn't go on forever there's a day where this is just going to stop um yeah. and even though that's something that some of us might find as as depressing or there's going to be a day where I'm not around and I can't see the world develop and I can't see the world evolve and I won't be able to see my my great 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 grandchildren there there is something also humbling about the fact that we only have a certain amount of time here and we sort of have to use it to our best and um I don't know imagine if you could live forever you you why would you get up in the morning, any day, because if you could just have another day, you know, yeah, we would all there, we would procrastinate exactly. every exactly. single day. So there and is, I'll do it in ten yeah, years. Yeah, and and there is there is this sense of urgency that I love about it, and I figure you know a lot of people say, oh, you're only 
you're only 17, you don't you don't need to be doing this stuff, you have so much time. And I think to myself, man, I don't really have a lot of time though. I mean, I have at the most, what, 85, 90 years? And in, in terms of space time, that is literally a blimp, that's nothing at all. Yeah. So I figure, I, I've just sort of thrown the whole age thing out of the equation because I just find that just focusing on um, you know, writing the best music that I can, learning the most that I can from other people who are better than me, um, trying to get as much experience as I can from, you know, analyzing scores and writing them and, and stuff like that and being involved in all these different types of things. Um, it really helps me exp- it really helps me exposed to all these different types of things and sort of excluding age out of the equation. It's just made things a lot easier because if we pay attention to what the standards of age are, like at this age you should be this good or at this age you should be this good or you can't do this if you're at this age and you can't do this if, if you're at this age it just sort of i don't know it, it just it just it eradicates the possibility of so much potential talent if you just try to set these standards that are just incredibly general generalized um you know like this universal competition that recently was released like you have to be 21 in order to participate and i'll be honest i just think that's the biggest load of crap ever i think that you know you have to be 21 to participate in the competition, but you know you can buy cigarettes at the age of 18. So okay, yeah. I mean that just that just is a bit interesting to me. Um, but anyways, yeah, that's that's just my my, my thoughts on that. Sorry, sorry for the rant there. <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. No, I find it incredibly inspiring that at your age you've accomplished so much. And I think some people, you know, like when they see you know people who they perceive as prodigies or like man, like he he started playing piano amazingly at five, oh, well, you know, and some people kind of get disheartened by it and they're like, ah, well, they don't even try or they give up. But I think inspiration can come from anything, either, you know, watching someone who's really young or seeing someone in their, you know, like 20s or 30s, you know, really Mm -hmm. proficient at something. But I think it's just no matter what age you are, if you're, you know, really into what you're doing and you want to, you know, you see this as a career path. Yeah. Age shouldn't be in the way. I think that's just people who maybe might be a little bitter about it because mm-hmm. they didn't start off so early. Because yeah, I mean, uh, I see you, and I'm like, man, like I wish, I wish I got into you know, see well, all that it, stuff at such an early age. It, but it, like, it's the exact same thing for me though, because I mean, there's people that are like f- five, six years younger than me that I just would give anything to be as good as them. Like, um, what's her name? Alma Deutscher, who's that amazing, amazing classical young composer. She's like 13 years old and she has written concertos and symphonies and, and just, I think I know you're talking about. Yeah. She's just one of the most incredible talents that I've literally ever heard of. And just listening to her speak and the way that she writes music and is so incredibly enthusiastic about what it is that she does. She's inspired me a whole lot. Um, especially for my love with classical music. Um, but she's just incredible, and she just totally eradicates that traditionalist view of, you know, oh, no people under the age of twenty one can't be good at this because they don't have the experience or whatever. You know, I don't know. It's just it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And if if somebody like her can prove that at that age she can have that amount of skill, I feel like society should open up to really um, bringing in more young talent. 
right? Because, I mean, I know yeah. like on movies, for example, we have young actors. And, of course, you can't have a 40-year-old playing a 6-year-old, so you have to have the young actors. But yeah. at the same time, I think we should open up to that younger sort of audience because, I mean, the, the youth has so much creativity and amazing minds. And they're they're so incredibly open to taking in information. So even if it's just more internships and more opportunities to get kids involved in um, the process, you know what I mean? Like, I think that that is one of the most amazing things that people can do. Um, so something like the universal thing, I feel like that'd be great, but open it up to a larger, you know, audience. Um, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and I also saw that you interned at the remote control productions, yeah. John Zimmer's, uh, production company. Yeah. Um, how was that experience? And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your experience there or what you can tell us about it? Yeah. Um, I can say some things. I can't say tons of things. Um, but what <laughs> I but what I will say, I will generalize it and say that it was a tremendously amazing experience. Um, you'll find a lot of people who um, will sort of stubbornly, um, ignorantly assault remote control productions, saying it's a it's a slave workshop. They just have a bunch of these workers walking around. The fact of the matter is, they really do not have to have interns at all. They have enough money to hire people for minimum wage and and do do the chores and go around the studio make coffee but they want to give younger people an opportunity to be there and observe and be involved in the process and just see how things are done and simply having the opportunity to be there and to to meet so many awesome people and even if you're the guy making coffee you are still you are still in there observing the process and yeah, for me totally. for me that was just that was just such an experience and and being able to to see everything at the sort of highest standard literally in the world of film music to seeing everything how it works how it functions that's an experience that I really will never forget and if anybody gets the opportunity to intern at remote control productions um, I would definitely say go after it because it's, it's just a tremendous experience yeah I totally think so. I think so and it seems like there's a lot of big name composers who have actually stemmed from working with Hans Zimmer and, and yeah. all the guys over there. And so I think, yeah. yeah, if anyone had the opportunity to shoot, I'd make coffee for all those guys just to hang out and, well, you know, kind of yeah. well, fly on the wall. Yeah. The thing is, a lot of the people that work there, of course, started out with the internship thing. Like Ramin Jawadi, you know, Hans has said, I still remember the day where I told Ramin that he wouldn't have to make another co cup of coffee again. You know what I mean? A lot of these people that are working at remote control started by being that guy that arrived on the first day that's just making coffee taking out the trash, doing doing normal stuff like that. But you begin to learn so much while being there. And you, you know, you get the availability to sit in on amazing, you know, sessions. And it's just incredible and it's such an opportunity. Um, and the fact that it's there at all is just awesome. And I think that I'm super, super thankful to to everybody at Remote who who supports that um, that operation. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I'm really excited for you and um, I want to ask, what are some things that you took away from that experience that you use in sort of like an everyday basis? Or is any anything that you've learned that you're, it's completely changed your outlook on how you go about composing for film or just your your workflow process? Well, I will, I will say this. It was the main thing that I took away is having something to do with the overall workflow, just the amount of work that it takes to work on scores of that caliber. Um, back in October, I got the chance to assist on, on a 
fairly large movie, um, the biggest movie that I've ever assisted on ever, um, and that was an incredible experience. I can't really say which project that was, but nonetheless, <laughs> it was it was really incredible to to just observe how incredibly grueling and intense a project of that caliber really is and how hard a lot of these composers are working. At Remote Control, these people are are insane. I mean, they will literally, there is somebody at Remote Control every single minute of every single day, um, whether it's two o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning, there's barely any time where there's like nobody there. It's just such, it, it's, it's a place full of so much hard work but also so much creativity and so much passion. A lot of the people that are working there, um, I, I just don't understand why people just find it so fun to attack remote because, um, first of all, I, people attack Hans for using additional writers, but the fact is he's a collaborator and he gives people credit and people there who are bringing on people on their team or writing additional music, stuff like that, they're being credited and it's not some type of s slave workshop you know, it, it's it's a fully operational sort of team-based system. And for films of yeah. this sort of caliber where there's that much music and there's so many conforms and there's so much technical aspects having to be done, totally understandable. I mean, that's just sort of the way of the game, unless you're somebody like, you know, John Williams or Ennio Morricone, some of the very few composers or Alan Silvestri who are, who are doing a lot with pen and paper and doing mostly everything on their own. Um, but, you know, with the modern world and how huge movies are nowadays, I think, you know, that's just sort of needed. But... I think, yeah, the one thing that I took away from remote is just the intensity of, of this world. And a lot of the times um, when, when you haven't seen an actual um, film of that level being worked on, a lot of times you forget just how, how hard the work is really um, and, and how much music needs to be written that hasn't been written and the organization of the cue sheets and everything like that. And, you know, being able to just sit in with, with mixing engineers and composers and seeing their process of how they navigate, you know, working through that much stuff. Um, that was a tremendous experience. Um, but I'd say that's the, the sort of main thing that I walked away there. Um, not, not necessarily very technical aspects, um, but, but overall sort of workflow ideas. Yeah, I, I definitely get what you mean about, you know, how people say the things about remote control. But what, I think when it comes to Hans Zimmer, the way I view him as a composer is he's, he's like a, he's like, I think he approaches it like a being in a band, you know, just mm, like what yeah. he does now, like, you know, with taking his stuff live on the road. You know, just that collaborating aspect. I mean, it's like you have people who do solo projects and they don't mm -hmm. want to work with anyone else and they can do it all on their own. And people, you know, might give them credit like, wow, he's doing all that on, on yeah. his own. But then, you know, some people see other bands and they view it as a whole band. But I guess being in the composer world, when you when you think composer, you think one person doing it by themselves. So I think some people just automatically maybe want to jump and attack that because like, Oh, well, why isn't he doing it himself? He's a composer. But yeah. I think, uh, I, I really liked his approach. I think getting, getting more people involved. And the thing about Hans, I, I just don't think people give him enough credit. I mean, cause you know, he writes these fully fleshed out 30 minute suites and everything like that, that are just insane, full of all the themes, all the musical content that people walk away from the movies that they love of his, like Gladiator, Dark Knight. I mean, that's that's coming from him. Um, and it's not just a bunch of people who wrote it for him. Um, he conceptualizes these ideas. He comes up with it. He runs the train. Um, 
or he sort of runs the team, the band, if you want to call it that. Um, And he brings in incredibly talented individuals who bring their own personality and their own, like he said many times, he casts his, his, um, he casts his ensemble as if it's sort of like his own movie. He's casting these actors to come in and be involved in it. Um, And whether it's the musicians or the uh, arrangers and stuff like that, he is leading all of this. I mean, it, it's his operation. It's his thought process. It's his themes. It's sort of his musical world. Um, so I just don't feel people give him sort of enough credit for that. And I think he deserves more credit for that. Um, and and yeah, he's just, he's great. <laughs> I love him. He's just awesome. So we kind of touched a little, bit, a little bit about your Behind the Score series on YouTube, which I think yeah. is really awesome. I, I love it. I, I always watch it whenever you upload a new episode. And <laughs> Thank you. Um, so how how beneficial has that been for you breaking down and analyzing some of your favorite film scores? Well, it's been it's been a true journey for me because um, we've had two seasons so far, and I think there's been more than uh, at this point there has to be more than fifteen, sixteen, seventeen hours of of analysis that we've done. You know, when it comes to all the videos being put together and mm-hmm. um, and everything like that. And we've recreated, just in season two alone, over an hour of, of film music, uh, whether it's Man of Steel or Wonder Woman, um, which was, Wonder Woman was sort of crazy, actually, because there was like a 15-minute suite for that. Uh, I think there was like seven or eight cues that we took a look at in that one, but that was just sort of crazy. My computer was about to die. Um, <laughs> but, it was um, on the verge of just yeah, falling apart. Yeah, but I mean, for every single score... Um, like there's videos on YouTube out there, like how to write like Hans Zimmer or how to write like I feel like that doesn't do enough justice to the composer. I feel like you have to go into every individual score because the composer has different approaches for different scores. A lot of people when they think of Hans, they go ah D minor, Brahm, blah blah blah. No, that's yeah. that that's Inception. That that was his sort of approach to that, um, trying to replicate the whole idea of time and the subconscious. Very very interesting technique on that. But people tend to generalize. So I feel like you have to go into every score because there's something different to take away from in, in every single soundtrack and whether it's you know the last samurai with those long incredible beautiful chords and the lack of violas using the high register of the cellos um you know stuff like that or um you know from different scores you get these different techniques that you can then put into your toolbox and it's all those different techniques that sort of go into developing your own creativity and taking different things from different things and putting them in your pool of influence it really helps you develop and I've definitely personally learned a lot from it, and I hope that the people who watch it also learn a lot from it. And I also, um, I also give out the project files for free. Um, I just sort of attach it along with the stems and the MIDI and everything like that because I, I just don't really feel like people should have to pay for that. I feel like, I don't know, I just feel like if people really want to take the time out of their day to learn that, and to analyze it and take a look at the session, I feel like they should be able to do that without having to pay 20 bucks for it. Um, so I just attach that at the bottom of, of every single video that I post there so people can actually open it up and see how that score was was created um, or the, the orchestration and how that, all that works together so that people can actually get a physical um, hand in, in that process. So... Um, not only have I learned a lot, but I hope that the people who watch it and um, and you know who have been there for uh, all these different episodes, I hope that they learn some, something from it as well. So it's been a great experience. Yeah, I think so. I think they're incredibly insightful, and you know, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of people get a lot out of them. It seems like you know since you've been doing that, your channel's been growing a lot more, and you know, just you know, I think it's just 
you helping people it kind of it's like a, it goes both ways you know you're helping yourself by analyzing these scores and also helping other people sort of gain an understanding of yeah. you know, how the how the process works from another person's perspective so i think it's great um are there any film scores that you haven't done that you'd love to do or anything that you have coming mm. up well there is a big season finale of season two of behind the score that's coming up very very soon that'll be next month um and that's going to be, I might as well just say it now, uh, it's going to be Inception, uh, Hans Zimmer. Oh, nice. Um, and so that's going to be a pretty pretty meaty one. I think the suite is around 11, 12 minutes long. Uh, we're taking a look at like six different cues, um, like half-remembered dream from the beginning of the movie. Um, we're taking a look at time, dream is collapsing, um, one simple idea, stuff like that. So that's going to be analyzing a lot of the essential aspects of that score. Um, the brass orchestration, which is very, very strong, as you know, uh, very, very famous. We're going to be taking yeah. a look at that. Um, and overall, just sort of the the overall production of that, we're going to be checking out. And it's such a fun score. So we're going to be doing that in the next episode, uh, which will be the season finale. And then behind the score, we'll be gone for a few months. Uh, might do some other videos in that uh, interim period. But then we'll be coming back with season uh, three, which is going to be dedicated to TV scores. So that'll be Game of Thrones, uh, Westworld, The Crown, The Tudors, Band of Brothers, stuff like that. A lot of the TV scores that uh, we know and love, we'll be taking a look at a lot of that. Um, including their their title sequences. So we'll be checking oh, cool. out the titles for most of them. Um, Game of Thrones will likely be split up into a couple episodes. Um, and for each episode, I think we're going to be taking a look at one to two cues from each season. So the first episode might be season one, two, and three, and then taking a couple cues from each season and then doing the same uh, for the second half. Um, so that's, that, that'll be season three. So that, that'll be a fun one. And I'm looking forward to, to diving into some of those TV scores. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm looking forward to checking that out. Yeah. Um, thank you for, for up, up and coming composers who are getting into film writing or, you know, film music and cinematic music in general, what are some of the most important aspects of songwriting that you've learned and what tips could you offer to people who are first getting into it? That's a really, really good I would say the number one thing is to start out with a small idea. Start out with the foundation of the house. Because a lot of the times, like for me personally, I learned this from experience. When I was sort of getting started, I, I completely forgot to build the foundation. And I just sort of tried to to, to 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 start writing without really knowing what I was doing. And I figured out that I was literally repeating myself. And so I think that starting out by building your foundation and building your pool of influence and analyzing as much music as you can um, really, really helps you to develop as an artist. And I think, um, I think the most important thing is to really just open up your, your ears to absolutely everything because you can take something away from from everything really uh, whether it's just a, a, a snare drum sound that you hear in a country song somewhere even though you might hate country music you can sort of bring that into your own music if you really like it or you know if there's something that you hear in EDM that's something like a production tip or something like that you can bring that into your own music so open up your ears to absolutely everything um, because that'll really help you um, develop your own sound and what you really like um, so I think that's a very important thing um, another thing is start out with the with the small ideas in terms of your your pieces. So if there's a small 
uh, rhythmic pattern that is sort of repeating throughout. Start out with the small ideas, start out with the themes so that the tree can then grow from that seed. And um, that's the one thing that I've discovered from a lot of these behind the scores is that the scores are so memorable and so great because they started out with the small ideas. Um, whether it's The Last Samurai with those simple yet beautiful, powerful themes, the whole score is built out of that. Um, and the sort of harmonic language that he creates with all those minor seventh chords and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it all comes from the small ideas. So a lot of the times we think that it's, it's got to be this these big, huge concepts and everything like that. But a lot of the times it's just the small things that allow for that sort of grand world to be created. Um, so, yes, yeah, start out with the small ideas. Open up your ears to as much as possible. Um, and I think that just just write, you know, you, you learn from writing. You learn from failing. You learn from succeeding uh you know you learn from everything really um you learn from the downs and you you learn from the ups and i think that no matter um you know no matter what happens if you write a piece of music you'll learn from it if something like i said if something didn't work you'll learn not to hopefully not to repeat that again unless it's a purposeful thing um, <laughs> you know like using parallel chords or whatever you know that's 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 a rule in, uh, in quotations, but, you know, it can actually be very, very helpful. And Hans uses it all the time, uh, like in time or like in uh, Thin Red Line. Um, and all the theorists would tell him that he is incorrectly voicing his chords, but I don't know, it, it, it works. So if it works, it works. Um, but but yeah, so just write as much music as you can and, and learn from it and learn from the experience and open up your ears to as much music as you can. Start out with a small idea, see how those grow and how those evolve. And those would just be sort of the the baseline ideas that I would say um, keep in mind when you're, oops, starting out. That's a great answer. And I think I think a lot of people get overwhelmed by when they first hear, you know, like a really big, dense orchestral piece. Yeah. It's sort of like, where do you start? You yeah. Know? But people don't realize it's just like any songwriting. It starts with a simple idea yep. or just or one idea, just not even like... You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to build a house and you look at a house and it's built and you're like, okay, I don't know where to start, but it's just, you know, yeah. you start, you know, grabbing wood and start nailing stuff together. And I think a lot of people just get so overwhelmed Yeah, and it's just, you know, it can shut people down or it can motivate people to try to learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, touching on, you, you were talking about, you know, listening to other genres and kind mm-hmm. of gaining insight into maybe some some how they go about doing yeah. little mixing and production tips yeah uh, what are your some what are some of your favorite mixing plugins that you use and do you have any particular mixing tips that you've learned for mixing orchestral music absolutely so um i go into this a little bit um and the technical aspects of the behind the scores and i've done a, a few track breakdowns of some of the demos that i've written uh, for some sample libraries and such and my sort of thing is if you use good samples, you EQ properly to get the bad frequencies out and do a quick high pass and you do stuff like that and you you balance correctly orchestrationally speaking and and you mix as you go in terms of using modulation, expression, automation, you should get a pretty good result. And for me, I don't actually use um, much of any third-party mixing plugins at all. I think the only one that I actually use that's a third-party mixing plugin is Clarifonic, uh, just on my master bus. So that's it. Um, I literally don't use anything else. I don't use compressors. Um, 
I don't use any of that because um, a lot of the samples are just already treated and a lot of them sound so beautiful and organic and elegant and I don't want to get in the way of that. Um, when it comes to synth and stuff like that, I sometimes will, will, will play around with that, but a lot of the times my mixing is very organic. I don't like to do a lot of it, um, but... But yeah, I sort of mix as I go because then when you're sort of finished with the track, you sort of get a pretty optimal outcome. Um, you know, so when I'm writing my music, I pay attention to expression and modulation um, in specific, and then I'll go in and make final changes and volume automation and, and everything like that. And then um, I'll get rid of any dirty frequencies, like in a lot of brass, you know, the mids, I'll usually throw an EQ on the center, uh, you know, um, right around the mid range, just sort of drop that on the, on the, on the uh, brass stems. Mm -hmm. And for the strings, I'll sort of uh, brighten them up a little bit just by adding a little bit towards the top, um, which sounds tends to sound quite nice. Um, if you listen to a, a lot of Hans Zimmer scores like Man of Steel, the strings are really, really bold and bright. Um, and I sort of like that sound sometimes, so I'll go for that. Uh, but, but really, um, I don't use a lot of third-party mixing plugins at all. Um, I, I have a lot of them. I have, you know, a lot of the the Fab Filter stuff. I do use the Pro Q too, uh, which is my my favorite EQ of all time. Yeah, and yeah I, I love that it. one. I use it like pretty much on every single track. Um, but yeah, I'm, I have quite a few of them. I just don't. I just don't ever find the need to um, to use them. I'm sure that if I if I come across something where I would need to, um, I definitely would. But but so far I haven't had to um, in the process of recreating all these scores and doing that. So. So yeah, when you when you work on large orchestral arrangements and you have lots of different string tracks or brass tracks, do you find yourself tending to EQ those tracks individually? Just so you're sort of like knocking yes. out frequencies. Oh yeah. So you don't ever group tracks together and and kind of do like a batch EQ or. So I actually will write for the individual voices, um, horn one, horn two, um, all the different legato patches. I'll sort of write polyphonically because that's sort of how I learned um, in terms of proper voicing and stuff like that and it helps me sort of keep organized in that in that regard um so that's sort of how i will work that and i'll, I'll literally go in if i need to into individual tracks and just sort of yeah make a little um bell decrease or something like that or add a high pass filter if it's something like a tr like a trumpet um, and then when i'm done doing that i'll go into the master group track and then if i need to make any you know, universal changes, I'll do that. Um, usually that's like a sort of small dip um, down towards the, the low to mid section. Um, but yeah, usually I'm going into individual tracks. Um, usually there there isn't tons of EQing I'm doing in terms of wins, only really on oboes and clarinets. Clarinets have a really strong timbre, so a lot of the times I'll have to go in there. But flutes um, usually sound great, especially the, the Berlin woodwinds. Um, those sound really, really nice. Um, and then in terms of strings, really what it's about for me is just, I feel like a lot of the times, like when I used to start, I used to just layer track over track over track over track over track. And I realized that I was literally, uh, you know, I wasn't really paying attention to what I was doing. I was just adding track over track over track over track, thinking that it would sound better because there's more. Um, and I feel like every single track that you add should have a purpose, like like an actual purpose. Like even if you're you're layering, which I think is a great thing uh, that I lo love to take advantage of in these behind the scores when I'm recreating these. Um, like like if you want to get a sound that is that is soft but intense, like literally do the mathematical. Um, you know, how, how do you take two libraries that have those two attributes and combine them and see how that sounds? So I, I love combining libraries to get the sounds that I want. Um, but 
but yeah, so I, I will, I'll go into e usually each individual track and EQ. So usually by the time I'm done with a, with a full arrangement, like one of the behind the scores or um, any film score that I do, usually almost every track will have an EQ on it, um, like Pro uh, Q2. And for the most part, they're incredibly subtle, um, subtle things, but they really build up over time. Um, I feel like, you know, things can get really hectic really, really easily if you don't pay attention to each thing. Um, so I, I like to... I like to add something to to each individual thing if it needs it. I'm not just going to add it if it doesn't need it, but even if it's a subtle boost or subtle decrease on a frequency that isn't necessarily needed, like if you have a bass and a bass drum, you, you don't need those two in the same frequency range, so m maybe you'll decrease the the bass drum so that you'll still get the punch, but you also get the bass um, frequency from the from the uh, you know the bass. So you know, I feel like it's it's just something where you have to identify what instrument belongs to which frequency range and which needs it the most. Um, so, you know, for example, brass has tons of really, really intense sort of mids. So maybe you can decrease the strings generally a, a bit so that there isn't as much. Um, and that's sort of how I approach it. Definitely, I think that approach is the way to go. I mean, sometimes when you have individual instruments, it's easy to like when you have a lot of them, it's easy mm -hmm. to kind of get lazy about it. Like, ah, I don't want to go through and yeah. EQ all these individual individual instruments. But at the end of the day, every instrument, like you're saying, has their own timbre and, and mm -hmm. sound and just sonic, you know, footprint and how it sounds. So um, I think it's definitely a really interesting approach. Uh, what are some of your favorite styles and genres to write and why? So I, I, I did this score last June and it was an amazing project to work on because the director is just a really really great person and it was a extraordinary film that I learned a lot from doing it was called Hidden um, and it's a Holocaust documentary film about the hidden children of the Holocaust um, and it actually has these these incredible sort of recreations of a lot of these scenes a lot of these um, um, amazing interviews from the actual hidden children who were who were um, survived um, the Holocaust. And it was such an emotional project to work on, um, and I did a lot of historical research going into it so that I could really approach it from a very genuine point of view. And um, and I got to write sort of in the style, I sort of mixed a few different influences. I would say it's sort of a combination of um, a little bit of Rupert Gregson Williams, a little bit of James Newton Howard, and a little bit of Desplat. Um, and so we had the little aspect of James Newton Howard where we had the solo violin sort of in the, in the realm of defiance and, um, the village, uh, we had a player named Nathalie Bonin who was a great, um, but we also had the sort of long, uh, chords and, and long drawn out harmonies that Rupert Gregson Williams so loves. Um, if you listen to like Legend of Tarzan or Wonder Woman, for example. Um, but then we had some of the sort of more, um, I don't know, more, period drama-esque sequences where we had a little bit of Alex Winter Desplat stuff in there, you know, like the Celeste and the piano, um, a lot of that type of stuff. So it was sort of a combination of those things, and I tried to put a little twist on everything to sort of meld it into my own. Um, but that was a great project to work on. Um, and let's see, what else? Um, I have another documentary coming out this June, which should be fun to experiment on. I, there's another... AFI uh, thesis film that I'm doing later by this great director, James Merrifield, who um, is graduating the AFI. He's working on this big um, AFI thesis. They've been doing this huge funding process the past uh, four or five months, but they have a big team and it's a really, really impactful story um, that is very sort of intimate and light. So um, that'll give me the opportunity to um, 
sort of get in that more sort of light ounce of estuary sort of range, which will be great. Um, and other than that, I, I do love writing sort of hybrid S stuff as well, sort of hybrid action. Um, that That's a lot of fun. I did this short film called Airsoft a while back, which is a lot of fun to do with this guy, Matthew Campbell. And I'm scoring a film of his coming up. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I just like, I like to work on a lot of different stuff. Horror is another fun thing. Yeah. Um, I, I just did a horror short for uh, Crypt TV. Um, who, who is, you know, is run by Eli Roth, and the guy that directed it was from American Horror Story, and so he he had this very interesting knack for wanting these super awkwardly intense sound design. Uh, so we spent a lot of the time uh, formulating our sound palette, coming up with new sounds and new 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 ideas, um, and that was a lot of fun to work on because I was sort of more used to the joseph bashara approach uh, with a lot of this sort of more albion 4-esque effects but this gave me the opportunity to go into the more uh cliff martinez um uh, you know territory so i just like to work on the the largest variety of stuff because i don't know i just i just don't like writing the same thing over and over and over again so i like to go from 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 different you know genres to genre yeah i think i think it definitely broadens your you know musical palette, I guess, just by working on so many different styles of music. So, you know, especially being a film composer or or wanting to be a professional film composer, you know, yeah. the more you can do, the better. And yeah, I think uh, horror is always fun. Hybrid scores, I think, I, I personally, I think hybrid scores are a lot, a lot of fun to do just because of that combination of the electronic mm-hmm. world and the orchestral world and just because they work so well together. Well, well, yeah, I mean, and I think in specific, the sort of Harry Gregson-Williams hybrid stuff is great, like the Equalizer and Spy Game. I, I love that sort of style of hybrid. Um, but I feel like there's been so many great composers who have sort of really revolutionized that that sort of genre in recent years. And I think it's, um, I don't know, it's just a lot of fun to do as well. Like, you know, you have some of the orchestral aspects, but then you have a lot of that really technical, crazy psycho sound design. Um, some percussion. It's it's really just fun to do. But I really love the the, the musical stuff as well. Um, one of the influences in recent um, months that I've really just grown to love and admire is Benjamin Wallfish. Yeah. Um, and his scores. I mean, he recently did this amazing score. Um, what is this? Oh, it's incredible. Um, it's called Mully. And I mean, it, it's not an incredibly well-known film, but it's... Um, the score is incredible and it's just so soaring and amazing and he did this other score called bitter harvest a while back um in 2017 um which is just amazing and solo violin he just writes so incredibly and he has the specific sound for his strings it just has this incredibly um intimate yet powerful strong like the the soundtrack for it for example like that's a ginormous soundtrack it's like 40 tracks or something Mm -hmm. but the last the last three tracks of that um or the last couple of tracks um i think they're like Blood Oath or uh, or something like that, um, just so emotional and beautiful, and he he just has this incredible ability to um, to write just so elegantly. I don't know how to describe it. He's he's great in that department, um, but yeah, yeah, he seems to be one of the composers who have kind of like uh, I don't know, like out of nowhere, just exploded. I mean, I I mean, he's been in the game for a while, but um, when I first heard about him was uh, a cure for wellness that was the yep. first score that i heard yeah and then from there I, was, I just started checking out checking out all this stuff and i was just like everything i listened to was just mm-hmm. amazing yeah well see for me it was 
um, back in 2016, there was this horror film that came out. I think it was produced by James Wan. It's called Lights Out. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of fun. Um, I thought it was a pretty good film, pretty good uh, creepy sort of horror flick. And that was scored by Benjamin Walfish, and it was for the director, David Sandberg. And Walfish went on to write for Annabelle Creation as well, um, which is that sequel to the... Um, to Conjuring? An- Annabelle movie, I think. Oh, Annabelle. It, yeah. it, it, it's, it's in the Conjuring universe, I think. Um, yeah. Um, but but it was the sequel, which was, I think, personally far better than the original. But the score <laughs> was so great. And the, the score for Lights Out, I think it was like the ending title uh, or the ending sequence. I just thought the score was great. Like it had the super hybrid technical approach to it. So I just bought that track. And then shortly after that, in early 2017, Hidden Figures came out, and um, that was wow. And then Cure for Wellness came out, and then it just kept going. And then there's Annabelle, and then there's It, and then there's Blade Runner, and he's just really good. He's really good. Um, and uh, I, I, had the, I had the honor of, of interviewing him a while back um, about Blade Runner 2049. Nice. Um, and, man, he's just he's the nicest guy ever, and he's, he's just so genius. And, yeah, I'd give anything to just, like, work under him for for a couple months and just uh, observe his process because he re- I think he is one of the best and one of the rising stars in this industry. Uh, I actually got to see him recently uh, over mm. here where I live in LA. Uh, oh. They um, they did a whole like it panel when they had him and like the old composer for it. Oh, Richard Bellis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I heard about that. Really yeah. It was really cool. And just like seeing all of them just sort of talk about, you know, their approach mm-hmm. to the story. Because like, he, you know, obviously he scored the newest movie and then the, yeah. the other one scored the old movie. So yeah. it was just really cool to hear both of their approaches in real time. Yeah. And two and, and two totally different scores, too. Yeah. I mean, the, the new one, the thing that I love about the new one, and I talk about this a little bit in that analysis that I did of this score. It was more of like a video essay than it was a, a behind the score because um, it didn't require any recreations. It was just more of a um, just sort of analysis of the musical approach and the way that it functions in the movie. But the thing that I love about it is it is this horror movie with some great scares and some amazing, amazing, um, you know, uh, just performances. And I just thought it was such a great movie. Um, and it had these scares, but it also had just this very intimate relationship aspect of it like these kids who are friends who are sort of trying to defeat this evil being and even though it had that dark side of it it also had this very light side as well and the final two tracks this the blood oath track and then the the track directly uh before the movie ends um they're so emotional and light and uplifting and beautiful and you know in 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 the original it score it was this very sort of circusy um i don't know quirky awkward um sometimes really disturbing crazy weird um and there definitely <laughs> are aspects like that in 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 the new it score like for example i think there was this track called shapeshifter which is where it shows the flautist lady um you know who's all from the painting, I don't know if you remember that yeah. scene, and it plays yeah, with the, flute. the weird flute that's just kind yeah. of playing and on then, this like weird atonal melody. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then pretty much what Wallfish did is he took this poem, "Oranges and Lemons," and he used it in different ways throughout the score, like in whispering and harmonics, stuff like that. A weird sort of um, children lullaby, and then the shapeshifter track. He like threw it through this incredibly harsh distortion, so that it's like screaming at you through the speakers. And it's so well done, but the the intensity of 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 the '90s version is just in a completely different way. the The '90s version is just more of like a quirky, 
awkward intensity, I think, uh, which is also very functional. And I think that that was a really, really fun uh, film in the 90s. But I think that the new It, um, I think the new It actually redefined the horror genre, I think. I think, I th- I think that's going to make a dramatic effect on more approaches to horror. And um, when we saw that with Get Out and stuff like that, like horror films that actually have a a relevance to it. Like it isn't just about this clown that kills people. It's about these kids who mm-hmm. overcome evil. You know, Get Out has a very social statement about it. You know what I mean? And so I think that horror is really going to learn from this type of stuff and begin to um, begin to take take things from the way that these films have succeeded. But but both great scores, I think, in their own right. Yeah, it's I, it's like taking the traditional what you think of horror music, and it's like yeah. approaching it from like a like a approaching it like a drama movie with horror <laughs> elements or scares, versus yeah. just like dark drones and you know a bunch of like a bunch of pizzicatos and just eerie harmonics. It's just people have heard that it's overkill, yeah. but the way he does it, it's it's great, especially um, like on the lights out score, yeah, how, or just pretty much anything he's done. Where it's more, it seems like it's more melodic and dark. It's sort mm-hmm. of, I think that to me, especially working with how the picture is, can be more scary than just mm-hmm. the traditional, you know, yeah, and, jump and, scares. Yeah, and, and and he brings a different voice too because he came from the world of sort of classical music, um, and he was a conductor for many many years, and he's a very sort of well trained musician and composer, and so he brings a certain elegance to a lot of these movies that he's working on. Um, like Dunkirk, you know, his, his arrangement of, of um, Elgar's Nimrod was just so beautiful. Um, and it, it, it brought this elegance to the film. And even though these scores like Cure for Wellness and It and Annabelle Creation are so dark, he brings, like I said, the sophistication to it that really makes you more immersed in the world, I think. Um, I, I, I love those Joseph Bashara scores. I really do love them, like like Insidious and The Conjuring. I mean, they're just so demented and so screwed up, uh, which is amazing, exactly what the films need. Um, but I feel like this, this Annabelle creation score brought something new and interesting to The Conjuring universe because of the musical um, sophistication of it. Um, and, I mean, the, the Conjuring score... And the Annabelle Creation score couldn't be more different from each other, I, I think. Like, The Conjuring is pure atonal, orchestral, um, just creepy effects. The Conjuring, or, or the, the Annabelle Creation score, is a much more classic orchestral score. Um, and it has a lot of that type of stuff in it. Um, so I think that, I don't know, I, I think that he's definitely one of the new rising talents. And he has this great ability to to include this musical sophistication that I think is, is, um, is really, really great. In 2016... Uh, you founded Candlelight Pictures, and mm-hmm. you've since directed a number of different projects, like Immolation, which was nominated uh, in the LA One Real Short Film Festival. Yeah. which congratulations on that. Uh, <laughs> you did Purge twenty twenty four and the dark thriller Eldritch, which I thought yeah. was really cool, and you scored the music for that. Uh, yeah. Did your love for film music spiral into wanting to get into filmmaking, or would you say that your interest is sort of one and the same? When I was, I think I was thir- or fourteen uh, when the, when the film 
Interstellar came out, and I had this friend at the time who was the drummer for my old band, and we began to just become fascinated with film, and we we just started to to watch just dozens and dozens and dozens of film and begin to analyze them, and we began fascinated with the cinematography and the way that the camera movement and the music and everything worked together to create the film, and we would sort of have these uh, review sessions where we just talk. I mean, the most nerdy thing you'd ever imagine is a couple guys talking about. <laughs> this movie for hours on end. I mean, and, um, and so we began to do that and it it was, it it taught me a lot, I think in terms of how to analyze and look at a movie and how all the different things go together to create that final product. Um, and I became interested in wanting to make films of my own. Um, so I, I made obscurity and immolation and Eldritch, um, Purge 2024 was a fun one because that was really me just wanting to experiment with with directing action and and horror. Um, so in, in that film, there's a lot of really um, I don't know, sort of grim sequences. I'd say like like the the, the finale of that, the third act. Um, and there's an interesting scene. I don't know if you saw that in the creek bed, which is a little bit disturbing. <laughs> but um, I wanted to see how I could. Um, direct action and horror. So I did a lot of analysis of, of many different action horror films um, going into that. Um, and that was that one. And then I'm directing a film right now, uh, which is a short film that we're making for Memorial Day. Uh, and that's called The Soldier. And it's a much more intimate, light film. Um, and that'll be a lot of fun to do as well. Yeah, I, I think I saw the Eldritch short when you posted it a long time ago. I, I remember the first thing thinking yeah. was a lot of the cinematography was done really well. Mm, yeah, yeah, we worked with this great, uh, this great guy, um, Alex Ron, who's now in LA. So we aren't working with him anymore. Um, but we have this new partner, um, Josiah Duncan, who's an amazing cinematographer from Indianapolis. He shoots on a on a red helium, which is just a beautiful camera, and his stuff looks incredible. And he's the nicest guy, and he's really, really great to um, to to talk with and to work with. And so that'll be a lot of fun to do. But but Alex was an interesting guy because he he shot um, anamorphic, so he shot true anamorphic, not just like anamorphic adapters or um, anamorphic emulators. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, but it, he shot true anamorphic, you know, with true anamorphic lenses and converters and everything like that. And it had this certain this certain dreamlike feel to it. I think um, even Purge, uh, you know, it had this this interesting quality to it. Um, but he very very talented. I'm sure he'll he'll go insanely far. Um, but yeah, those were a lot of fun to do. Do you ever see yourself wanting to do a full feature film? I'd I'd love to. I mean, I I would love to both direct and and compose. Um, I I hope that I can. I, I hope that um, there's a possibility for it because um, I know that a lot of actors will can act and they can produce. And a lot of, um, you know, for example, John Ottoman is a film editor and he's also a film composer. He, he He's one of the most brilliant people. He is so underrated, okay? He is so underrated. He edited the whole entire film, like X-Men and Valkyrie, and then he went on to score the whole film. I mean, that is insane. He's the editor and the composer for so many films. And I'd love to... Um, I love to direct and compose um, if, if that is a um, opportunity that presents itself because I, I just love the two platforms um, and I just think that there's so much fun to do and they both require um, sort of this creative aspect that I love um, so much about film. Um, and they're both very similar actually, I think. Like you're, you're conceptualizing how, like with music, um, for example, 
everything goes into how the music functions at a scene, the movement, the way that the actors respond and look at each other, the way that the camera sort of moves in and out of, of different shots and stuff like that. That all goes into how the music sort of navigates the scene and how that moves. So I think that they have something very much in common. Um, you know, really all you're just trying to do is you're just trying to deliver a message. You're trying to tell a story. And it's just two different ways. Directing, you're sort of leading a, leading a band. Um, and with the composing team, you're sort of a member of the band, but you're not the front man. Um, but, but still, it, they both allow you to sort of dive in to a lot of these creative aspects. And, and I just love both of them a lot. So I hope that I'll be able to, to sort of, um, you know, to do both of them. Do you find it easier to score the music for your own projects or do you ever do you ever get any like like overanalyze it or kind of question I, what direction to take yeah. or do you find it to be easier because you understand the story yeah. I on would a be way in, deeper level I would be interested to um because there's an interesting thing that happens when you score your own films I'd be interested to know if any other people who do the same experience this but um I direct the film and I also will edit the film as well um, and also compose the score for it. And so when I'm editing, I use temp music um, to edit um, and I have just thousands of film scores that are on my mm -hmm. computer um, and I know each of them pretty well. So I will, I will take different things from different scores, um, sort of like the music editor position would do sort of at the forefront of the composition process um, and I'll put in the temp and then it'll come to the composing process and I'll bring it into my digital audio workstation working on 1M1 and I'll think to myself, who the hell put in this temp? It's so freaking good. I, how do, and then I think to myself, oh, yeah, that was me. Shit. <laughs> yeah, that's so. funny because a lot of composers always talk about how much they hate that. Yeah, 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 dude. But, but imagine being that, that person that put it in there and you're pretty much pissed off at yourself. Yeah, you did it to yourself. I, I, just, I just cannot, I cannot edit without temp music. I know a lot of like composers, they should look at the editors and, and just realize the fact that it's so difficult to edit without temp, to get the pace and the overall rhythmic aspect of how a scene works and how it moves. It's very difficult to do without temp music. Um, and the, the the directors and editors that can do it, I'm very impressed that they can do that. I think like Roman Polanski is one of them that, that doesn't, uh, you know, he, he doesn't have any temp music on any of his films. Um, and... That's very, very impressive, I think. And it's also very, very difficult because the composer doesn't have much of a basis of, of inspiration in terms of um, where to draw from. Um, but that can also be an amazing thing because then they can draw completely from their own mind and completely from their own creativity and, and their pool of influences. Um, but with temp music, it's, it, it, it directs you in a certain way and it makes things a little bit easier because it, um, I mean, you can look at it from both ways. It could make things harder depending on how you look at it, but it also can make things easier because it gives you an idea of what you should be aiming towards. Um, you know, like imagine if you put a temp score in the movie Ex Machina, like an, or an orchestral score. Um, imagine how different that movie would have been, you know, if yeah. it would have had an orchestral score. But because of the fact that, you know, the movie has this very, um, have this very sort of, electronic foundation that's sort of how that film sort of evolved and it sort of evolved from this very creative aspect same thing with like Annihilation which is one of the coolest scores I've heard in recent years um, you know you, you can tell those are scores where it is very um, dependent on the creative aspect and I think that temp music will sometimes eradicate that possibility um, but it also makes things a little bit easier by letting you know the pace and the rhythm of the scene 
Um, but it, it, you know, when I'm writing music to to films, I prefer um, to have at least a little bit of reference of what the director wants um, because I don't like writing a cue and the director. Um, you know, of course, conforms, everything like that, if the, if the cue doesn't function properly. But if you write uh, and, and the director says it's completely 150% off, you didn't do anything like what I wanted you to do, that's something that can happen if you don't have any temp involved. Um, so it leaves a little bit open. Um, but I like to have a little bit of reference of what the director wants. So for that film that I scored for Crypt TV, he sent... Um, I think he sent a lot of those more um, sort of hardcore Cliff Martinez horror uh, sort of action scores. There's a lot of that type of stuff. There's a little bit of 127 hours having to do with a lot of those really creepy, creepy synth sounds. Um, uh, and so, you know, different stuff from different things I think you can sort of put together to develop the own sa- your own sound for the score. But I like to have a little bit of reference. Do you ever do you ever find yourself trying to approach it like being uh, when you're working on your own projects, you know, because some composers I've heard where they'll get the script and they'll just start writing music or, yeah. you know, the like Hans Zimmer, like with Interstellar. Yeah. Inter- Interstellar was a beautiful was a beautiful um, process, I think, for for Hans, because it, it 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 started from something like we were talking about so incredibly small. Because Christopher Nolan said, if I give you one page, just one page, and I, you know, and he delivers this typewritten letter, um, so you tell that it's not a carbon copy; it's literally typewritten, and it's on this very sort of hard piece of paper. And Hans takes this piece of paper, and it, it's a story about a father and his son. And Hans writes this very intimate piece of music about his uh, about his son, his relationship with his son, and that piece of music he brings in. Uh, you know, Christopher Nolan comes in; they listen to it. And, you know, Christopher Nolan listens to it. He says, I love it. And Hans says, well, what's the movie about? Christopher Nolan goes on to talk about the movie. Uh, it's this huge science fiction. Uh, there's a, uh, you know, there's a father and a daughter. There's this space. I mean, the earth is ending. We're going through wormholes, alternate dimensions having to do with time and relativity and stuff like that. And Hans says, well, what are you talking? I just wrote this incredibly tiny little intimate piece of music. How is this going to work? Christopher Nolan says, No. Now I know where the heart of the movie is. Mm-hmm. So that is that is the story of Interstellar. Um, yeah, that's what it was. He flipped it yeah. on. Yeah, so, exactly. So he would relate it to his son. Yep. Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and that that's what makes that score so so amazing. And I, I think that has to be one of the most genius scores in recent years. Like yeah. the the ending of that film when he brings in that um, the theme when he sees, I mean, just the whole aspect. I mean, the whole concept of that movie, like. Like seeing the like seeing your daughter older than you, like that is just an amazingly peculiar but interesting concept, and the way that the film presents it, um, and so many different ideas having to do with relativity and um, alternate dimensions and everything like that. But the way that that intimate, tiny little theme comes in at the end of that movie um, just goes to show that is where the heart of the movie is. It's that relationship between the daughter and Matthew McConaughey's character. And that is what makes that movie as good as it is. It's because of the intimate aspects, not because of the the huge, gigantic aspects. Um, and even though there's this movie where there's waves um, that, that go up thousands of feet and there's black holes that change time, cause time dilation, and there's alternate dimensions where you can peer in on different aspects of people's lives, even though there's all that type of stuff, 
again, it's just all this tiny little seed that was planted at the beginning of the movie about this daughter and this father, which is what makes it so great. Yeah. Damn, you're making me want to watch that movie again. <laughs> yeah, well, I, interestingly, I just watched it recently because um, it came back to a, a theater near nearby actually replays movies. Oh, awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, we saw um, Hunger Games recently. <laughs> and uh, that was a lot of fun to see after, what, six or so years now. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, but then, yeah, but then they showed Interstellar. And I was just so amazed by how much it, it feels like it could have come out just yesterday. I mean, it is, I think that is sort of, I think going to be one of the most, like when people look back at film and they say, oh, this is a landmark in terms of horror. This is a landmark in terms of how we revolutionize the drama genre and Shawshank Redemption and Interstellar. That is how we revolutionize science fiction. I feel like that is going to be one of the things that we look back upon. Um, and same goes for, you know, this is how we revolutionized experiencing war on screen how war plays out and the 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 grueling aspects of war that's dunkirk or saving private ryan um so i think that interstellar is amazing in that regard and i think that that the, the humanity in it is what makes it so incredible awesome well ashton i want to thank you for your time uh yeah, it's course. definitely awesome talking to you i've uh, definitely been wanting to talk to you for a while because i feel yes. like you you know, you have such a, a really awesome insight on, you know, the approach of, of film scoring. And, you know, you're, you're definitely, I think, a rising talent. And I think you have a really bright future ahead of you. And I'm definitely excited to see where you go in the future. So, yeah, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us and uh, hope to catch up with you soon. Well, thank you so much, Craig. I truly appreciate you bringing me on. Um, and I had a lot of fun chatting. <laughs>